Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning. Like I mentioned before, if you're new to our church, my name is Dave, and uh, I don't, I'm not dressed like you, but I'm actually the senior pastor at this church. And I have not preached here since Easter. A lot of other people have taken the pulpit for uh, some important reasons, and I was not actually supposed to be at the pulpit today, but as you know, our beloved Pastor Frank had uh, a medical event, and so we want him to rest. We did not want him laboring away this week. Um, so I'm sure he's now got an extra sermon in his hip pocket to pull out in the middle of the night if I should lean on him. But um, I just it was decided that though I'm actually technically not here, I'm away at a small group retreat. Um, I left early, and that retreat is still happening. And uh, just really glad I could be here. And just let's let's all have open hearts. <laughs> I told somebody else that when it's been a long time since I preach at Harvest and I come back to the pulpit, there's this weird feeling like when you travel for a long time and then you're reunited at the airport with your spouse, and it's someone you know well, but you haven't seen each other in a while, it's a little weird. So I've just been praying that God would use me this morning. And so I want to ask you to bow with me in prayer just briefly. God, I'm feeling at this moment very sharply the need for you. But I also acknowledge, Lord, that um, it is not only from the pulpit that your spirit must work, but also in the seats. And so I pray that you would open each person's heart and their ears, their minds, their spirits to what you have to say. And we pray, God, that this important biblical principle would find its way into the fabric of our lives, and we would be blessed for it. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you've come to Harvest in, like, since Easter, you've never heard me speak, and maybe this will be what decides whether you stay or go, but um, this morning, the, the title of the message is Sowing and Reaping, and it comes out of Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 to 10. Let me just read that with you, and then I want to dive right into it. Here's what it says. Don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. So let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. One of the things I love about the letters that Paul wrote that are included for us in the New Testament is that they're written to real people in real situations in real life. They're written to people that are trying to make sense of their faith in a messy world, 
And even though since the time that Paul wrote these letters, a lot has changed in the world, air travel, the internet, on and on, the truth is, since that time, the world hasn't really changed that much. I'm always amazed when I read ancient writings, how often I find that they're relatable. That even though so many things have surface-wise changed in the world, the human heart and the human spirit has remained essentially the same for all of time. People still deal with the same junk they dealt with a thousand years ago or five thousand years ago. People have been people for as long as people have been around. And so I find that the letters of Paul written to real Christians in a messy world, in a messy church, trying to make sense of everything, still are is so relatable to us today. And in this particular section of his letter to the church in Galatia, what Paul is addressing are people who are really unhappy about their situation in life. They're looking at what's happened. They're looking at, if you will call it that, the harvest that they've pulled in, the crop that they're pulling in from their lives, and they're really not happy about what they see. They look at their circumstances, and something in their heart says, this does not sit well with me. It doesn't seem right what I'm getting out of life. And they're distressed. And much of their distress flows out of a distortion or misunderstanding about a very important simple principle called sowing and reaping. Paul states it very simply at the end of verse 7. It's, harder to, it's very hard to state it more simply than this. He says, you will always harvest what you plant. You will always harvest what you plant. What you put in the ground will determine what comes out of the ground. That's a, a, a universal law in agriculture, but what he's arguing now is it's also a very important rule of life in this world. Now, that's a very easy statement to speak and seemingly to understand, but it still needs a little unpacking. And so I'm going to unpack it with you. But I want to start right off the bat by very, being very clear what this is not saying. It is not saying that when a person is mistreated horribly, when they're victimized, when someone does an unthinkable thing to them, that they're getting only what they deserve. I've heard it taught that way, and it's shocking to me. To tell a person who is a victim that you further victimize them by saying, you brought that on yourself. That is not what we are saying. That is not what Paul is saying. That is most definitely not what the Spirit of God is saying. Now, there are times when calamity visits us because of our folly, but we're not beginning by saying to somebody who's in suffering and traumatized, you deserve that. That is not at all the spirit of this message or this passage of Scripture. Be very, very clear on that. Are we, you guys didn't fall asleep during that part because I'm going to get a lot of bad emails. If you weren't paying attention, we are not saying that one bit. And here's the important thing. I think Paul's starting point, and mine as well here, is we're not starting by, by observing what happens to us and trying to figure it out. See, we're not starting with the suffering that befalls a person's life and saying, what could this mean? What could have caused it? Instead, what we're saying is, never mind all of that. We know that the tragedy falls upon people who are victims, innocent victims in this broken world. It happens. But instead, Paul's focus is not on what happens to us, but what we do to happen to the world around us. No matter what you do, trouble will find you. But Paul's focus is rightly placed on the trouble we actually contribute to 
because of what we sow into the ground. And so let's focus there with him. There is this true and simple principle that what we do, our choices, our decisions, our actions, produce a result in the real world. And it's fairly reliable that what results is very often a reflection, a true reflection of what we did. Paul applies this simple truth to two very important different groups of people in the Galatian church. Both groups are distressed, but for different reasons. The first group is distressed because they've been deceived, either by someone else or by themselves. And can I just say, and you probably agree with me, today the form of deception most common in our world is self-deception. Would you agree that we lie to ourselves way more than other people lie to us? Okay. I need an amen on that one. If you're not agreeing, you are so self-deceived. If you're sitting there going, no, no, everybody lies to me. I tell the truth. Come on. We lie to ourselves all day long. All day long. We couldn't live with ourselves if we didn't. Self-deception is the most common form of deception by far in our world. And so the first group is discouraged because they've been deceived and often they've deceived themselves. And so something about what they're getting out of life is troubling compared to what they believe they've put into life. And then a second group is distressed because they're discouraged. Because they actually are doing good and nothing good is happening. And so Paul addresses both of these important groups in turn. And let's look first at the group that is discouraged. Or that is, I'm sorry, that is deceived. And he says very simply, don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. I'm going to focus a little bit on this word, mocked. What do you picture when you hear that someone is mocking God? Because what Paul is saying is in the church in Galatia, there is a, a faction of people who are guilty of mocking God. Now, maybe you picture that sort of snarky, superior attitude of some very outspoken atheist authors who write books with provocative titles like God, lowercase g, is not great. God is not great. That's uh, Christopher Hitchens' masterpiece. And Richard Dawkins, he wrote something called The God Delusion. Now, maybe that's a form of mockery that does exist in the world, but I don't think that's the kind of mocking of God which Paul has in mind here. Rather, I believe what he's saying is that there is a group of people in this church who looked at what was happening to their lives, what the outcomes were, what the results were, their situation, and they were saying, when I compare that to what I've put into life, something doesn't seem right, and their conclusion now is, I don't think God's very fair at all. I don't think the universe works the way God says It seems like either that or God just doesn't like me in particular. Do you ever feel that way? God loves everyone except me. You guys can talk back or shake your head or something, but I know that a lot of people feel this way. Like God pays attention to everyone but me. I hear all these people sharing testimonies about how they've done so much good and so much good has come back in their lives. When will I experience that? And so they're saying, I put nothing but good into the ground, and I get nothing but weeds out of the ground. 
What gives? Is God fair? Is God just? And their conclusion is, if God is the superintendent of all this, he's failing me. And I don't think he's as fair as he makes himself out to be. Now, sometimes that is the case that we pour good into the ground and don't see good come up. And we'll address that in the second category of people who are discouraged. But Paul offers a sharp challenge to this first group. Because he says, before you conclude that God is not fair, anytime you're tempted to say that or think that, check yourself for a moment. Because think about what it will cost you if that really is true, that we live in a universe superintended by an almighty God who is not fair and who doesn't care about you. I want you to think about the consequence if that were true. And the reason he's challenging them is he's saying, before you reach that conclusion, make sure that you've taken a really honest look in the mirror. Because even back in Paul's day, he understood that self-deception is the most common form of deception. That we lie to ourselves way more often than other people lie to us. Do you have the courage to ask your closest friends, tell me the truth about me? Start with where you think I am um, lying to myself. Where I have a far greater view of myself than you think I really deserve to have. That's scary. I studied for a week under um, some professors at the Northwestern Kellogg School of Management during something called Faith Week, where their MBA program was being designed for those in the faith community nonprofit leadership. It was a fascinating week for me. I share that class with a bunch of very um, liberal practitioners of the Christian faith as well as a bunch of rabbis from the Jewish faith, and I learned so much. My mind was expanded. I was really challenged by these people. But one professor in particular stood out for me. His name was Harry Kramer. I was not expecting to be moved most in my heart by this man because he was the most straight-out-of-the-corporate-business-world guy that taught us that week. He used to be the, the, the CEO of Baxter, Travenal, the, the big medical company. And he had written a bunch of leadership books in the business world, but he taught us, and one thing he said really stood out to me. He said, you can always tell a person who is not very reflective or self-aware, and you can translate to a person who's not very honest with themselves, because they very often speak in the language of surprise and perplexity. A person who's not self-aware or self-reflective, you'll hear them very often say, I don't know why this is happening to me. I'm shocked. Why do people keep saying that to me? Why does this keep happening to me? And they ask it all the time as a rhetorical question. Because their little theory is, life is just random. Nothing is fair. I don't get it. They haven't really stared in the mirror and wondered, why does this? You know, I talk to people who say, you know, I'll say something to them that, that's kind of a risk, and they'll say, huh, why do people keep saying that to me? And they're angry, but like, yeah, you're not the first person to tell me that I should say thank you more often. Why do people keep saying that to me? Because you are really ungrateful. <laughs> could that be part of the theory you could add to your repertoire is people keep saying it to you because you need to keep hearing it. What Professor Kramer said was, you'll know somebody who doesn't have an accurate view of themselves because they are just blindsided all the time by life. Why on earth does this keep happening? 
See, most of us greatly overestimate our past nobility. When we look back, we have a hugely inflated view of how good we were. And I see this all the time when I step into a marital counseling situation. A couple calls me, 911 distress signal. We're fighting, something's going on. And I come to the house and when I say, all right, tell me what's happening. Here's what I get often. Well, I was just praying for my wife uh, in, in tongues and with fasting. And then she just out of the blue ripped into me. I'm like, what is this? I tried to bless her thrice in the name of the Lord Jesus, and she rejected it thrice. And then and I'm like, wow. And then I asked the other part, oh, you know, I was just making care cards for missionaries overseas and writing a long journal entry about my love for my husband. And all of a sudden, he, I'm like, wow, it's amazing how two such godly, innocent, loving people found themselves sucked into this maelstrom of conflict. How does that happen? I'll tell you how it happens. They are lying to themselves through their teeth. Their memory is completely distorted because the truth is, when we look back at yesterday me, yesterday me looks like a superhero. Yesterday me studied harder than he really did. Yesterday me worked much harder than he did. Yesterday me was far more patient than he really was. Yesterday me is an awesome dude because I told me so. (laughs) Yesterday me doesn't deserve anything that today me is getting. Yesterday me deserves every good thing tomorrow me should look forward to. If you planted corn every year in a field and every fall you had a field full of tomatoes or wheat, at some point you wouldn't just keep going, what is going on? You would say I've been greatly misled. Either my seed merchant is a liar and he's putting wheat seeds into corn packets or I'm drunk every spring when I'm planting because I am not doing something right. If I plant corn and I get a few pieces of wheat in that field, that's normal. It's expected. It's the wind, it's birds, it's whatever. But when I get a completely different harvest than what I believe I planted, something is being told to me that I must hear. It's as if, let me give you a little, little picture. If this is what I believe I'm planting and this is what keeps coming up, it's God's way of saying to you, something broke in that process. Somewhere along that chain, more honesty, more self-awareness, more truthfulness, more vigilance is required of us. Because in the average case, a field, and if we're just sticking to the agricultural analogy here, a field at harvest time is like a time-delayed truth detector, a polygraph, for what happened months earlier in the spring. Here's the problem. With agriculture, just like in life, the things we do that have a causal effect later, there's usually a long time gap between what I do and the consequence it bears in my life. And because there's such a long time delay, I have a lot of time to rewrite history and re-remember things so that I have yesterday me be the hero of the story. Yesterday me looks so good, and today me is completely caught off guard. Why on earth do I keep getting wheat when I keep planting corn? A field doesn't lie. When I play basketball with my boys and there's ever a disputed call, they shoot, they shoot a three-pointer and say, the ball don't lie. 
That's their way of saying, whatever happens here, that's the universe telling you. Well, here's the thing. The field don't lie either. It don't lie. When what you keep experiencing in your life is brokenness and destruction and death in your relationships, in your health, in your finances, in your family, in, in whatever you touch, everywhere you look, it just seems like, why does everything I touch keep breaking? At least part of your reflection can't just be shaking your fist at the world. It has to be a deep look inside to say, what am I doing that keeps contributing? And it's not all on you, but some of it must be because it's not normal to keep planting corn and keep harvesting wheat. That isn't how the universe works, not even a little. And and that's not meant to discourage you. It's meant to spare you any more years of harvesting the wrong crop. Because I'll tell you, for a season of my life, if I use a farming analogy, I thought I was a dung farmer. That's all I kept pulling out of the ground was poop. I'm like, am I farming poop? Am I putting poop seeds in the ground? Because I keep just hauling in poop from the fields. Fall after fall after fall. I learned some things about my life during that season that woke me up. And I think that's really God's intent this morning for those who are deceived is to say, if you suspect that there's a conspiracy against you by the universe and by the the one true living God, before you reach that fateful conclusion, take a moment and ask the Holy Spirit to come into your heart and shed the light of truth and honesty about what you are also putting into the ground. Because if you plant when you're drunk, you're going to be awfully surprised a few months later. See, we harvest what we sow. And even though there's a time delay and there's, there's a, a residual effect, a delayed effect, when a person is addicted to pornography and day after day they look at those images, in the near term, all they may experience is Flashes, peaks of physical pleasure followed by flashes of momentary guilt. They won't realize the long-term effect it's having on their capacity for intimacy, for their view of the opposite gender, for their identity in their bodies. When you mess around with, with distortions of sexuality, like pornography, where it is given in a way that is not intended to be received and enjoyed, in the near term, you cannot understand the long-term effects. I mean, why does anybody smoke cigarettes? If you got lung cancer the first day you took a puff, no one would smoke. You're like, oh my gosh, I'm dying. You wouldn't do it. But you could smoke four packs a day for 30 years and still jog a mile. And and people know this, so they say, because the effects are not immediate, I feel no connection between what I'm doing and what's happening. But God wants to offer us a wake-up call to spare us unnecessary anguish. The long-term effects of the daily choices we make today are not always visible in the near term. And I'm not simply moralizing or giving you some kind of political agenda. I'm asking you to connect the dots in your own theological context. Whatever you believe is true of God in this universe, surely you don't live in a chaotic randomness. There are rules that govern even your universe. And in that system... Are you willing to acknowledge that sometimes what we do with seeming impunity today 
produces huge damage in our hearts tomorrow. Every time I see a relationship fall apart, the people in it claim it's overnight, out of left field, all of a sudden. It's never all of a sudden. It's never out of the blue. The seeds of that destruction are visible long before we feel the pain of loss and death. And so I want to give you an earnest challenge in the love of God. That before you reach the, the fateful conclusion that God's not fair or the universe is out to get you, take a moment and invite the Holy Spirit to probe your heart with honesty. Don't invite others because you'll just be resistant and defensive. Invite God himself to expose your heart to you first. Just say, if there's anything hidden, I want to know. And then there is the discouraged. By the way, before I move on, let me just say these brief words about this verse here, verse 8. What Paul is saying here is, it's not so much like if you start with what I did, I can spin everything to look like I did something great. For example, you can say, I donated tons of money to something. But what if the rationale was because I wanted to produce good karma for myself? I wanted to guarantee some good luck in the future. And so what Paul does here is he says, let's not discuss or debate what you did. Let's make it even clearer. Let's talk in terms of who we did it for. Who we were serving regardless of what action we took. Because can we also acknowledge that it's possible to do things that appear good, but not for good reasons. I think the world is filled with examples like that. And so what Paul is saying here, and I really agree with this, is the law of sowing and reaping most applies in the spiritual realm this way. That when we make consistent choices to live to please our own nature, and when you hear words like sinful nature, I don't want you to picture some fundamentalist Bible belt pulpit thumper just yelling and angry, veins sticking out. I'm not, I don't want you to picture that. The truth is all of us have a sinful nature. If you don't believe that, stop being mad at anybody else. We all have one. Our base nature is not something that bends naturally towards the good and the selfless. It just isn't. We wouldn't need sermons to tell people, like you don't hear anybody preaching, please cheat. Please be selfish. Please live only for pleasure or for the moment. Take advantage of your neighbor. Exploit other people. Be greedy. You don't need sermons prompting people on because barring any other input, that's where the heart takes us so much of the time. It's when we meet someone noble or hear something noble that our hearts are reminded there's another way and our hearts are pulled in a direction that does not seem natural. We all know this, even though we've, put on layers of of all kinds of arguments to deflect this. We know because the people who have hurt us most, they're not exceptionally evil. They're human. They're acting out of their brokenness. They're acting out of their corruption. And nothing has stepped into their lives to show them another path. They've hurt us because they're broken and there's nothing else to fight against that broken. Humanity is broken. It's one of the reasons I study history so that I never forget 
I never think in the age of the internet we're moving into utopia, into an enlightened humanity where we're just good. What a bunch of garbage. Humanity has always been broken. And God shows us a better way. And so what he says is, if you make a choice to give in to that sinful nature, then out of that choice will develop a pattern and a character in your life that leads to a consistent harvest of death and destruction. You can look at it in relationships. If, you know, when someone asks me, hey, are you free tomorrow? And I could tell it's not because they want to, give me free tickets to Great America because they're like, uh, we're moving. And so when you, you know what, that feeling of like, there's a different tone when someone's like, hey, are you free tomorrow? You know, they want something. You're like, uh, well, I got this thing, but I, why, what's going on? Uh, what's up? <laughs> you don't want to. And when the person goes, well, I got to move this piano up four flights of stairs. The elevator's broken. Could you like maybe help me? And you're like, God, why did you make me friends? with this person and somewhere in your flesh in your sinful nature like all of us is a desire to go oh thank god i have a doctor's appointment that i just made right now Uh, i can't i would love to i can't we love that wouldn't we but when you make the choice i i told everything in my being doesn't want to help you but i'm going to help you and that leads to something in your life and in that relationship for years to come Even something as simple as driving from Old Navy down to Five Below on the other end of the same strip mall. Getting in your car and driving the 15 seconds rather than walking. Or taking the elevator every time instead of taking the stairs and you go, why am I so winded? (laughs) All I did is walk from my car to the church. Well, there's a reason because the choices you make every day lead to something. And if in the moment of decision, the person you always serve is that side of you that goes, take the easy way. Just do what's good for you. Don't worry about anything in the future and don't worry about other people. You do you. I hate that phrase, you do you. What the heck does that mean? Does anyone want to live in that world where that's the operating rule of humanity? You do you? That sounds like hell, actually, to me. That sounds like the philosophical definition of hell is everyone you do you. Don't give a damn about anybody else. Doesn't that sound like hell to you? I agree with you do you as an act of self-expression, not a self-centeredness. But when we choose to, to please the Spirit of God, when that's what calls us out, like this past weekend at our CG retreat, when we reached out to Gary and Peter, because we have like 50 kids in our youth in our cg and we said man we we don't know who's going to take care of these guys and they gave up their saturday to come and teach at our retreat and the kids had an amazing experience because those adults came and gave of themselves and i'm really blessed by them when i think about that the next time gary or peter needs anything from anyone in that cg that relationship is cemented by that simple act of selflessness Each time we make a decision to please the Spirit of God, the harvest we're planting for is a crop of eternal life. It's a simple principle. That doesn't mean that every time I do good, good will come to me. 
It doesn't mean that every time I do bad, bad will come to me in any immediate fashion. But I think we can all agree that this very accurately describes how we know that the world really works. So what do we do for the discouraged who find that for the very longest time they have been legitimately, honestly doing good and nothing good has come out of the ground? Paul acknowledges that for these people, they're getting tired of doing what's good. Is anybody there? You don't have to raise your hand, but inwardly you can be like, yes. I am right there. I have done what is good. I have swallowed my pride. I have, I have chosen to forgive. I have been generous and unselfish. And for the longest time, this person that I'm trying to win over has not changed one bit. I remember telling a husband, if you will just be more affectionate to your wife, I think she will be more affectionate towards you. And five years later, he's like, hey, dude, you should go back to school because it's not working. She's not changing one bit. Look at her. I'm like, yeah, I can't argue with you. She does not look at all affectionate towards you or anyone right now. And I think what what Paul is trying to say to these people is don't lose heart and give up. Because the truth of the matter is that some crops take a longer time to grow than others. You know, the wheat in the background of this photograph takes 120 days to grow to maturity. Every four months, if the weather is amenable, you can turn around a full crop of wheat. But do you know that for an acorn to become a mature oak tree takes at least 50 years? They live up to 200 years. If you tell your kids, hey, we're going to do a little science lab, we're going to put this acorn in the ground because acorns become trees, get ready to revisit that. When they're retiring. (laughs) See, that's not a fun thing. Like if you put a corn kernel or whatever, you know, you get that little sprout within a few days and kids are like, nature's awesome. I'm going to be a scientist. That's good. But if you put an acorn in the ground, that kid's going to be so discouraged because every day for like 20 years, they're like, mom, is that a tree yet? (laughs) Well, son, kind of. You just got to give it like another most of your life. And then something will happen. That's why you see all these trees in the forest around you. It took a long time, but it's, the, the testimony is everywhere. Trees grow out of acorns. They just don't grow quickly. And I'm reminded that for some of us, the thing we long to see may not actually come to pass in this world, but nonetheless, God is still doing a powerful work in and through us as we patiently wait and commit ourselves to sowing good seed. I'm always reminded of my friend who's a pastor out east. And when he came to Christ, he was the only one in his family who was a Christian. And he loved his parents very much. And every day, for up to an hour, he prayed for the salvation of his family, especially his parents. Now, I think I could probably do that for like a couple years and not lose heart. But he prayed nearly an hour every day for one topic for 20 years. And I think at a number of points along that journey, he was sorely tempted to quit because he said, you know, does God even care about my parents' salvation? 
I've prayed for them to know who he is for so long, and they're actually getting worse. They used to just be like neutral. Now they're kind of like nasty. What's going on? And then one day in year 20, and I think he always pictured after 20 years of praying every day, one day his parents would come up to him and go, son, what is this gospel? And he would lead them to the Lord, baptize them in a river, and doves would fly down from heaven. He, I, I think that's what he pictured. One day they come home and they go, hey, we became Christians. <laughs> How? You know, our friends finally invited us to a church thing, and we went. I'm like, I've been inviting you forever. You, you never, but I guess these friends invited them. They went, they heard something, God moved, and they just saw Jesus in that instant for who he was, and they received him. Their lives were never the same after that. And what he says is, I got to be honest, I did not enjoy those 20 years of sowing seeds of faith about my parents' salvation. But every day I see them now, that wait was worth it. It's like they were making up for lost time, all the wasted years not knowing Jesus. It's like turning 80 years old and then someone goes, hey, taste this, and you taste chocolate for the first time at age 80, and you think, eight decades wasted. I could have been gorging on this heavenly substance, and I discovered only now. That's the way it was for them. For my friend, that was 20 years of wondering if anyone's on the other end of that line. Maybe some of you are there right now discouraged because you have done good. You still are doing good, and you're waiting to see that result come in. I think God would say to you, don't grow weary. Don't give up. Because some crops take an awfully long time to grow, but God is not unfair He has not left the room. He is not turning his back on you. He knows. He sees. And in his perfect timing, this principle of sowing and reaping most often comes to pass. Let me finish this way. Maybe we're tempted in hearing this to resent this principle of sowing and reaping because I think I've been there before where I said, I don't want the responsibility of connecting what happens in my life to what I do. I want mercy instead. I don't want, I want someone to take care of my mistakes. I I would like to always take the elevator and still be awesomely fit. I don't, I want to eat the brownie and still be, I don't want the responsibility of connecting my actions to my outcomes. And often there is grace and mercy to be found where God covers our mistakes. But let's not resent this wonderful idea that God says what you do now actually impacts what you experience tomorrow. That's not a curse or a responsibility. It's a privilege. It's a gift. C.S. Lewis tells an interesting story. He wrote this in 1959 in an issue of The Atlantic. And he told a story um, about a time that he anticipated a trip to London and I guess in those days, when you went to the big city, you got your hair cut so you could be all gussied up for the city. And his plans changed. And so he said, well, maybe I should cancel the barber appointment because I no longer need to look really nice since I'm just staying here. But he said, just as he was about to cancel the barber's appointment, he felt a strong compulsion in his spirit to keep that appointment anyway. He, didn't, he couldn't explain why, but he just felt it, so he kept it. 
And it happened that the, the barber was a Christian man that he and his brother had often helped out of really difficult circumstances because this was one of those men, and we all know one, who has had to deal with more than his fair share of hardship in this life. And he was a good man, but he was a man who was asked to carry a lot of heavy burdens. And so C.S. Lewis often stepped into this man's life to help him at a point of need where he was able. And as he walked into the barber shop, he was greeted with this exclamation of relief from the barber who said, thank God you've come. I was so hoping you would keep your appointment. And he began to tell him a story of a really difficult situation that C.S. Lewis was able to help him with that day. Had he come a day later, it would have been too late. Here's what he says reflecting on that incident in his life. Quoting Blaise Pascal, he says that God instituted prayer in order to lend to his creatures the dignity of causality. I love that phrase. I actually arrived at that phrase while I was writing the sermon, and I Googled to see if someone else had said it, and I was like, doggone it, really smart people already came up with it. It's a beautiful phrase, this idea that when God tells us we can touch and affect what happens, it's a gift of dignity. Listen to what C.S. Lewis writes. Not only prayer, but whenever we act at all, he lends us that dignity. It is not really stranger nor less strange that my prayers should affect the course of events than that my other actions should also do that. If that's confusing to you, maybe I can break it down to you this way. One of the things that makes slavery or poverty or incarceration so difficult and painful is that in those three situations, the dignity of causality is taken away from you. For the slave, for the prisoner, for the poor person, in so many cases when these oppressive things have come on top of you, There's this discouragement of nothing I do makes any real difference in my life. Do you think a slave that works extra hard today is going to have a better life tomorrow? No. Do you think a prisoner who's a model prisoner is going to have a different experience in his prison cell? Not really. It's still prison. And so one of the painful things is for certain people, the dignity of causality was stripped away from them. And what they're saying, what we're saying to them is nothing you do will matter This is your life. Deal with it. What Paul is revealing to us is that when God gives us the principle of sowing and reaping, he confers to us the gift of the dignity of causality. He says that while I am still in charge, while I am still the king of kings and lord of lords, I give to you the gift of having a say in what your life looks like. You will never do it independently of God, but make no mistake, your choices are not meaningless. Your actions are not futile. The things we do and choose actually affect our future. That's a huge gift of dignity, which God gives us so that he pulls us out of that frustrating situation where it doesn't matter what I do, I still get what I get. So I want to ask you as we close this time out, is there some area of your life where you look at the harvest you're pulling in and you feel like I did some number of years ago, you, you wonder, am I a poop farmer because my whole crop is a cartload of poop 
And maybe not in every area, but maybe in one area of your life, you're experiencing this ongoing pattern of brokenness and destruction, and you're wondering what that's all about. This is not the total picture. It's not the full answer, but I want to invite you to consider that if there's an area of your life where you would love to experience a different result, could it be that God is challenging you this morning to sow differently in that area of your life? And here's where it's going to take faith. You can make a radical change in what you do today and won't see the turnaround tomorrow. It may take a while, but will you be invited by God this morning to begin sowing differently in an important area of your life so that maybe months or years down the road, you will begin to experience a really different result than what you've been pulling in? I want to encourage you that when you make that choice, you're not in it alone. God still remains in charge. He still remains the driving force behind our lives. But this is the gift he gives us, is the dignity of saying that what I do actually matters. What I choose is meaningful and not futile. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.